Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. I'm Rob Young. As Britain's political chaos and confusion intensifies, we look at what Brexit might end up looking like a week before the negotiations are due to start. The UK is, uh, I'm sorry to say, just a small little island out there compared to China and the, and the US um, and also compared to the European Union. France's powerful president plans to shake up the country's labour laws. But will the strike-prone unions allow him? They're pretty powerful in some key sectors of the economy and they may paralyse the country pretty effectively. But it doesn't mean they will have huge support among the population. And the robots that not only are after your job but your favourite tipple as well. Do they enjoy it though? (laughs) Well, it's a sentient artificial intelligence. Of course it would enjoy whiskey, right? That's coming up later. In a week's time, Britain was meant to hear these trumpets play again, heralding the Queen's speech in which Her Majesty sets out UK ministers' plans for the year ahead. But there'll now be a delay to that grand state occasion, deepening the sense of disarray in British politics, days after the governing Conservatives lost their parliamentary majority. That news comes after a chaotic weekend in which the Conservatives said they'd done a deal with Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party that would give them a working majority in Parliament. Within hours, the Prime Minister's office said no agreement had actually yet been reached. All of this raises serious questions about whether the UK will be ready to start talks on Brexit next week. The Conservatives went into the election promising to leave Europe's common trading area, the single market, and to quit the customs union, which allows paperwork-free cross-border trade. So what's the stance now? My colleague John Humphreys has been talking to the UK's Secretary of State for Brexit, David Davis. We have been given an instruction by the British people, been given a decision by the British people. It's now for us to go back and do the job, not to bicker amongst ourselves about whose fault it was or whatever, but to get get on with the job. It's the biggest set of decisions we've had to take for decades and the biggest negotiation we've had probably since the Second World War. So we've got to get on with that and do our job, deliver for the British people. But negotiations begin next Monday. Will you have a clear agenda? Yes. I mean, it'll be me principally in the in the sort of detail stages. I mean, the prime minister will do the sort of big negotiations, which will be face to face with the rest of the council. But the very first thing we're going to start out with is the status of European citizens in the UK and British citizens in Europe. They want to do it first. We want to do it first. Right. Not the divorce proceedings, not the amount of money we pay. what What they have laid out is three things. One is European citizens. One is money. One is Northern Ireland, right? Now, of those, the one that is hypersensitive on time because it relates to people's anxieties, you've got people worrying in Britain that they can't stay here. People living in Spain, Brits living in Spain, worrying that they won't be able to say that. It's all, the worries are unnecessary and they shouldn't have them, but we want to make sure that they're dealt with as quickly as possible. So that's right up front. And I think you'll find that the... The political dynamic in Europe is the same. You know, the, the Poles, the Lithuanians, the French, the Spaniards all want to get on with that quickly. So that'll be the very first thing. And then when you get to the tough bit, mm. and that's membership of the uh, single market and the customs union, that's when you're going to find yourself in pretty deep water, aren't you? Because this, you have been seriously weakened as a result of this election. Well, you say that. Uh, something like 80% of the British people voted for 
the parties that have accepted we have to leave the European Union because that's what the British people decided. The parties that didn't want to do that, parties that wanted to reverse that decision, the, the Liberals and the SNP have all had setbacks. They've, not, they've, they've had a, a poorer outcome. So that's the first thing to say. Secondly, the reason for leaving the single market is because... We, uh, we want to take back control of our borders. They're not compatible. The Europeans will not accept. Well, you don't know that until you've had the no, discussion, No, we do know. Do we do know. Because they're... there are ways in which you can reach no. agreements no, on we've, that. We've, they've made it very, very plain. So you're yeah. as hard as, as you were before well, this whole well, thing began. It's I mean, not hard. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a logical outcome. During the referendum campaign, the people voted for three things, in essence, control of borders, control of laws, control of money. And in order to deliver that, you can't do that inside the single market. So what do you do? You try and have the best possible access from outside. The interesting thing is that the Labour Party, they had about six or seven positions over time for a variety of internal reasons, I think. But eventually, when they lit upon their position for the general election, if you read it very carefully, it's incredibly similar. It is access to the access, single access, market. Access, exactly indeed. right, access to. And, uh, and, and so, you know, but I where it's different, I'd... where it's phenomenally, hugely different from you, is that they regard the threat that no deal is better than a bad deal as being a completely empty, pointless and rather stupid threat because you couldn't carry it out No, that, that, that's, I'm afraid that's just objective. I mean, you're, you're right, that's, that, that's their stance, but they are objectively wrong on that. The simple truth is, well, for two reasons. Number one, it's possible. We have worked up that alternative in some detail. We're still working on it. Not because we want to, not because we want to, but you've got to, in government, you have to, if you're responsible, work up every contingency. But the other side of the coin is, you know, if you go into a negotiation without the ability to walk away, then you will have a poor outcome to that negotiation. David Davis. Well, various politicians from the main political parties are urging the government to change its Brexit plans and keep the UK in either the customs union or the single market. Scotland's First Minister, the SNP's Nicola Sturgeon, says that position should be abandoned. I'm calling today for a process that is opened up to include more voices, uh, all parties and all four nations of the UK, and an approach that has continued membership of the single market at its heart. The Prime Minister's got to recognise she asked for a strengthened mandate for a hard Brexit and voters across the UK refused to give her that and she cannot simply carry on as if nothing has changed. It's unclear what the UK's final position may be. Political dealmaking could determine that. Guntram Wolf is the director of Bruegel, an economic think tank in Brussels. He told me retaining membership of Europe's customs union could be tricky. A customs union is basically um, the establishment of common external tariffs and the removal of internal tariffs. And that's basically what the European Union has done. So there is no, no country of the European Union has its own tariffs. Um, they all, we all have joint external tariffs and internally we have removed the tariffs. So basically we have to agree on which foreigner gets taxed how much for its imports or exports jointly. And so the benefit to the United Kingdom of remaining in that would be companies from the UK selling their goods or services elsewhere in the European Union would not have to fill in all sorts of paperwork to export products to what remains of the EU. Yes, yeah, so the advantage for the UK would indeed be internally to uh, to have the access to the goods markets in particular and be tariff-free. But the disadvantage, of course, has to be said clearly, is that the UK would lose essentially its ability to enter any trade negotiations with the rest of the world because that would have to be done out of Brussels. 
and the British government has for the past year made an awful lot out of the possibility of striking trade deals with the United States and China and all other so all, all countries around the world which are outside of the European Union criticising the EU for being slow when it comes to doing such deals. Turkey is not a member of the European Union, yet is in the customs union. Yes. So is that a, a kind of arrangement that the UK could perhaps replicate? Yes, so Turkey is indeed in the customs union, in particular as concerns goods, not so much as regards services. And I think that would be a model for the UK, certainly. But let's also be clear that the UK's hope to negotiate extremely quickly favourable trade deals with major players like China and the United States may be a little bit of wishful thinking as well, because essentially there's two elements when you negotiate with external partners. One is your negotiating weight, where the UK is, uh, I'm sorry to say, just a small little island out there compared to China and the, and the US um, and also compared to the European Union. While, of course, it has the advantage, and that's the second element of uh, being speedy and you know having quick processes to arrange something. But overall, I think the lack of weight of the UK will make it actually quite difficult for the UK to secure super favorable deals uh, with uh, China or with the US on things that really matter, such as consumer protection, environmental standards, and so on. The UK, of course, is a service-led economy, so a deal just on goods may not be enough. No, a deal on goods is actually part of the interest of the UK, but not the full interest. The big issue is, of course, financial services. What kind of deal can be secured for financial services for the UK? And there, I think it really becomes a question of not just regulatory equivalence, but really acceptance of regulatory enforcement also. And I think that's where we are back to square one, basically back to the question of, is it going to be a single market or is it really a third country relation? And a single market really involves enforcement and common rules in financial services. And then it would be possible to keep London as the financial center, as it is currently of the European Union. Now, if that is not accepted, I think equivalence will not be accepted on the European side. So at that stage, we actually enter a debate where it's third country access to the European Union market, which will come with more heavy regulatory burden. Guntram Wolf. Well, Simon Boyd is the managing director of John Reed & Sons, a steel firm based in the south of England. We spoke to him a couple of times during the referendum campaign. He was hoping for a leave vote. How does he feel now? From my point of view, the politicians have made a right mess of this. And for businesses like us, it's really worrying because what we're starting to hear through the media now are people who uh, argue for a soft Brexit, which is code for staying in the EU. You know, we're under no illusion. We know that we have to be outside of the single market and have to be outside of the customs union to be able to get the great prize that's here to be won for the UK. What is the impact of all of this political uncertainty on your business and on your confidence doing business? We've just been putting plans in for a multi-million pound investment in our own factory so that we are ready to take advantage of the benefits of being outside of the control of the European Union. And uh, what do we do now? It's caused us to pause. It's caused us to rethink uh, our strategy and we're now having to think about, Craigie, have we got to fight for all this yet again after years and years of hard work to 
to try and get our voice heard so that we can get rid of the shackles of the European Union. Why is it so important for your business to be outside of the single market and outside of the customs union? We're so over-regulated. It's easier for us to export to Mongolia than it is into the EU. And, you know, we are a trading nation, and it's so important now that the politicians who are trying to make political gain out of this, whichever side of the house they're at, they now need to come together and to give us the clean Brexit that the British people voted for. That was Managing Director Simon Boyd. Well, uh, let's talk to the independent economist and market strategist Jeremy Batstone-Carr. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Rob. What's been happening to the the British currency in response to all of this? Uh, The currency is down. No great surprise. Uh, Political uncertainty, as we've been hearing. Coupled with the dwindling inflationary pressure, the Bank of England on hold, a substantial current account deficit. And, of course, on the other side of the coin, the euro has strengthened as a result of uh, Omar's strong performance in the first round of the French uh, parliamentary elections and uh, a dwindling in the threat posed to the Italian establishment as a result of a local election over the weekend. OK, now let's talk about technology companies. The value of technology stocks around the world has been going down over recent days. Who is being affected the most and why? Uh, well, the I suspect that uh, the biggest impact will be felt on index trackers and those investors who have put a lot of money into index tracking funds based on the fact that they can't beat the market. Now, it's dangerous to overplay the extent of the falls at the moment, but what has happened is that share prices, driven by momentum, have got significantly ahead of the levels that can be justified by underlying sales and profitability, even expectations of future sales and profitability. How big will this so-called air pocket be? Well, according to some sources in the United States, maybe as much as 30 or 40 percent. 2,000, anybody? Yeah, that sounds potentially like another tech bubble bursting. It certainly does. There's no question whatsoever that technology is a key part of the future, be it as it stands at the moment, artificial intelligence or whatever. And yet when you have a situation, as we do now, in which Tesla, in stock market terms, is valued more highly than BMW, this feels like a bubble. We've also been hearing from various global pension funds about their yawning deficit. Briefly, is this serious? Should it's we be worried? a very big question as well and a major issue bubbling up now in which pension funds are finding black holes all over the place. A black hole is when the market value of your assets doesn't match the present value of your future liabilities. So a gap deri- is expands between the two. Uh, the most recent story today, the Municipality of Boston Transit Authority, big black hole, actuaries expecting future returns to be significantly higher than they have proved to be. Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy Batstone Carr there. The London 100 share index is down a tenth of a percentage point at 75.17. And in New York, the Dow is down a third of a percentage point at 21,218. More joy for supporters of France's President Emmanuel Macron. After a stunning victory in his election last month, Macron now looks set to get three quarters of MPs in the French Parliament. His Republic on the Move party has gone from nothing a year ago to the dominant political force in France. President Macron intends to dramatically reshape how France does business with big changes to labour laws. So what do these voters make of those plans? France needs to be reformed. Uh, Instead of uh, wasting time uh, trying to convince uh, people in the National Assembly, it's better to give him a majority. If we keep like the two different main parties that we used to have in the past years, nothing will move. I think it's catastrophic. 
I think his education reforms are catastrophic. And labor reforms are catastrophic. It's not at all what I believe in. I'm not happy about it. With Macron, sure, we avoided the worst, but I'm not very optimistic for these five years to come. Thomas Mikalski is a professor at the HEC Business School in Paris. He told me more about the changes President Macron will be trying to push through France's National Assembly. Definitely the first thing that is uh, going to be approached is the labour code reform. Once that's done, and uh, we hope uh, we're going to see some results soon, there's going to be further things on the agenda. So there's going to be unemployment benefits, insurance, perhaps uh, a reform of the educational system, an overhaul of the apprenticeship system, and then other things like the pension reform, changes in the tax system, and so on and so forth. All of this is quite controversial stuff within France. Just talk us through some of the Labour Code changes, though. Definitely. So what you might think is going to be fairly uncontroversial, it is really a big deal in France. The first thing is negotiations over pay, benefits, the famous 35-hour workweek, that these could be negotiated at the firm level and not at the branch level, which is the norm now. So the famous French 35-hour working week could very much soon be dead. Indeed, and this is the most controversial of these measures, and they're going to be widely opposed, especially by some battling uh, labour unions. The second one is that, uh, and here it's unclear what exactly the measure is going to be, but the main idea is to limiting severance pay or damages to unlawfully fired workers. And this is a source of concern, especially for small firms, the jurisprudence is very varies widely. Uh, the same uh, faulty dismissal may be awarded completely different damages in very similar cases. And uh, you might think, oh, this is no big deal, but there are uh, approximately 120,000 court cases a year in front of uh, labor courts. So this is a, a big thing. And here there's a wide scope of negotiations what that exactly is going to mean. Various French presidents have previously tried to overhaul the way the French economy works and they have failed because they have come up against significant opposition, yes, from the labour unions, but also from ordinary French people. So why is it going to be any different this time? It seems that uh, what has been germinating for quite a while is a large dissatisfaction of the general public with the state of affairs in France. And I think the election that we had uh, yesterday, the first round, is a culmination of this. If you also observe the mass protests of 95, when Alain Juppé, uh, when he tried to push his labor reforms, those were massive, million-wide protests. With years, the protests against reforming labor codes dwindled. And by now, even if they are some in the fall, I don't expect them to be as massive. There may be painful, though, for example, labor unions that are very combative, like the CGT, which is the communist labor union, they're pretty powerful in some key sectors of the economy, like, for example, refining or railways, and they may paralyze the country pretty effectively. But it doesn't mean they will have huge support among the population. So you think Macron will win? I think uh, that he has a chance, but you can have uh, a huge constitutional majority in parliament and yet, what's going to matter at the end of the day may be what happens in the streets, whether we have strikes, whether we have some kind of uh, mass protests. And the public opinion is going to matter.
That was Thomas Mikalski in Paris. Now, Pride Month is celebrated around the world with parades in cities such as Los Angeles, Athens and Rome. It's a time when companies focus on the gay community. The US clothing brand Abercrombie & Fitch has caused offence, though, by tweeting this. The Pride community is everybody, not just LGBTQ people. Well, many readers inferred the company was saying gay pride isn't just for gay people and the online backlash has been ferocious. So just how much damage has this done to the clothing company's brand? Matt Kane is the editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine. I asked him why all the fuss. Lots of our readers were upset. I mean, you've got to remember that Abercrombie & Fitch is a company that basically built its early success, um, at least on its appeal to the gay community. And they've never really stood side by side with us. They've never really made any effort to understand us. They don't advertise in in either of our magazines. You know, they're not um, straight allies in the way that a lot of fashion brands are. The problem with the wording of the tweets from Abercrombie & Fitch is they've completely misunderstood why... As gay people, we need our own celebration that is for us. So you're not concerned that your reaction against this tweet could perhaps be seen as reinforcing division? No, not at all. I think we need to stand up for our history and who we are. When you consider, as a minority group, we have had one of the histories of persecution that's almost unparalleled. And a lot of these stories haven't been told, whether it's the chemical castration that people used to have in the UK, whether it's the gay men who were put in concentration camps by the Nazis. You've got to remember that it is still illegal to be gay in 72 countries around the world. In 13 of them, you can be put to death. It's very important that as gay people, we go out to pride marches, celebrate who we are publicly, so that people living in these countries and maybe listening to the World Service now can see that there is hope and that there is a better life elsewhere in the world. So how angry are you then at Abercrombie in Fitch? Would you boycott it? Would you suggest your readers boycott it? How far does this go? No, I wouldn't suggest our readers boycott it because they admit they effectively admitted the mistake by deleting the tweet straight away. And trust me, I'm not angry. I'm editor-in-chief of one of the biggest gay magazines in the world. Some of the stuff I read about that happens to gay people every day all over the world overwhelms this kind of thing. A tweet is the least of it. A tweet is the least of it, but we do have to be vigilant and we do have to stand up for ourselves because so often we weren't allowed to stand up for ourselves over history and in the present around the world. And, you know, we don't need to be pathetically grateful anymore for the most minor levels of acceptance. It's not about that anymore. Matt Kane from Attitude magazine. Well, Abercrombie & Fitch says it works to ensure that everybody feels included, respected and empowered and is proud to show commitment to the LGBTQ community. Now, there have been all sorts of dire warnings about robots taking odd jobs. That's one thing, but get this, they could start helping themselves to our favourite drinks as well. Vintage whiskies can change hands for thousands of dollars and fakes can be hard to detect without hiring expensive whisky professional tasters. Now, technology could come to the rescue. Alex Ritson, with some robotic help, has this report. Computers like me are getting cleverer and cleverer. Now Professor Uwe Bunz from Heidelberg University in Germany has created an artificial tongue. He told my human colleague Alex Ritson that it will enable machines to taste whiskey better than humans. It's able to discriminate whiskies. If you look at your tongue, you have four or five different elements 
the synthetic tongue can discriminate around 10,000 different tastes. Okay, deep philosophical question. Now, looking ahead into the future, we combine your artificial tongue with artificial intelligence. Will there ever come a point in the future where a machine can actually enjoy whiskey? Well, I, I mean, unless it, of course, it's a sentient artificial intelligence. Of course it would enjoy whiskey, right? So can it really be true? Machines better at tasting whiskey than humans? In the line of duty, you understand, I thought it best to take a stroll through central London to one of the prime whisky-tasting destinations. I'm Steve Worrell. I'm the general manager of Cadenhead's Whisky Shop and Tasting Room in London. So do you believe that a machine could one day take your job? No. Do you want to talk to a machine about, OK, I need a bottle of whisky and I need it for this event, for that event... We've got more passion. We love what we do. We have connection with it. We touch it. We feel it. We sense it. Now, this machine, I'd love to see it in operation. I'd love to get the results to see what they are and to do some like blind tasting with it. And let's, you know, prove it. Blind, blind tasting. Well, blind tasting is where you try something. So I'm going to pour something out now and you're going to be the guinea pig. Uh, right. And what we're going to do is to play with your senses, we're going to use two different glass styles. Okay. So one product, but two different glass styles. Go into a small tasting glass. Oh, it's fiery. Okay, so there you go. That's your first description. It's fiery. You've had it in the small glass. Now try it in the large glass. Okay. Oh, you're right. It's different. Yeah. Now it's on the middle of my tongue and the taste is stronger. And the taste is built up a little bit. And essentially you're saying computers don't use two glasses. They wouldn't use two glasses, exactly. They're they're missing out. It'll never work. They're missing a little trick there. So that is why you couldn't do this on a computer. It's one-dimensional. So they, they might get a very good tasting note, but will it change by using different glasses? And that's what we do. Note to self, I must learn to use two glasses next time. <laughs> Alex Ritson and his robot friends with that report. Well, that's it for this edition of World Business Report. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.